Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and we'll be talking today with author, educator, and activist Jim Merkel. Jim began as a military engineer. Just after the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989, Jim quit his job and took immediate personal responsibility for his own part in global problems. Merkel subsequently authored Radical Simplicity, Small Footprints on a Finite Earth. He received an Earthwatch Gaia Fellowship to research sustainable living in India. He founded the Global Living Project and was hired by Dartmouth College to serve as its first sustainability director. Jim lives the life of radical simplicity. He is a homesteader, growing and preserving his own food and living on about $5,000 a year. Jim has given hundreds of hours to share his wealth of knowledge. I am so pleased to bring you Jim Merkel. In doing this recent tour, I would think that that really put your finger on the pulse of the sustainability movement. This is so present for you. What are people thinking and talking about and feeling right now? Well, uh, it's quite amazing because I've been doing this work for 20 years, encouraging people to simplify and live more sustainably and do it in a real fun and challenging, exciting way. But what I think is the real difference in the last year is people now get it that the status quo isn't working and all the encouragements they have the government to just, oh, keep spending. We're going to stimulate you to spend more money, and we're going to ask you not even to save it if we give you this stimulus package. We don't even want you to save it. Just spend it, and we'll get the whole thing running, and everything will be like it was, and we'll all be happy. Well, people aren't driving their car more even now that the gas price is down again, and I think they realize they were out on a limb. People got bought into the consumerism American lifestyle, and it wasn't satisfying. It was really risky. Their savings rates had never been lower. And once they started losing jobs, they realized how risky it all was. And they don't trust the big brother and the big corporation anymore that they're going to be the savior who's going to bail them out or bail us out. And so they're realizing, I think, in a lot of communities now, we've got to get more self-reliant, more bioregional, global the globalization that we've been sold, and if you're not into globalization, you're into isolationism. That's the two paradigms that we've been taught. You're one or the other. You're a communist or you're a capitalist. You're a globalizationist or a isolationist, and people know that that's not the reality. People can are now ready, I think, to start growing some food in their communities, whether they're in the city or the suburbs or the countryside. Youth at colleges now are more interested in agriculture, sustainability, global health issues, and helping you know solve the toughest problems we have. So it's been inspiring to her, and we've been tracking this movement called the Transition Town Movement, which started out of the UK and transitioning. It's a movement that's grassroots, and it's looking to transition a whole town and municipality out of being dependent on fossil fuel to a fossil fuel-free future that doesn't affect climate. And towns are signing up for this all along our route. We must have visited seven communities that are engaged in transition towns. Wow. If people want to find out more about the transition town movement, what resource would you point them to? If you Google the transition town, you're going to find all sorts of stuff. There's a national one in the U.S. 
Transition Town uh, website. And then if you're in a community, that national one is going to funnel you to your local community Transition Town network. So Vermont has one, for instance. New Hampshire has one. Maine has one. It's really happening. We just got trained in it before we left on a tour, Susan and I, my partner, and uh, got trained in being Transition Town facilitators. And then we met with other facilitators as we traveled and asked them to tell us some of their stories of what they're doing in their community. So just as one example, Vermont's uh, capital, Montpelier, has agreed to become an official transition town, and one thing they're doing is uh, planting vegetable gardens on the capital lawn. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. So you are an educator at heart, and I really want to give our listeners a greater appreciation for the education that is the journey of your book, Radical Simplicity. So let's just go to the book for a while. Just for those who may not know this, the word radical means root. So the root of the word radical is root. So people who take a radical view of something are interested in getting right down into the root of things. And your book does this. It takes us on a very detailed educational journey, but it's very nuts and bolts, very practical in terms of how we can minimize our carbon footprint and our negative impact on the Earth's ecosystems. And my question about this as you talk about the book is, is behavior change really the root, root, root of it? And if there's a deeper root to simplicity, what might that be? Yeah. Yeah, my sense is it's more of a spiritual root root. (laughs) How do I see myself in relation to all life on Earth? And how would I like my relationship to be with other life forms, with other people? And how do I practically act on that day to day? Most of us would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. I've seen those sermons where you're witnessing someone's life who's so engaged in service. They're engaged in helping the world become a better place, and you visit their home, and their home is simple. Mm-hmm. And their lifestyle is in alignment with what they are trying to do in the world. Their own life, if they believe that climate change is really serious, then they are making huge transformations in their own life, either figuring out how to live without a car, or using it very, very little, or sparingly, and being conscientious, or using public transit, or walking or setting up so they can work from home. You know, they've made some things, some changes in our society are difficult. In other societies, they aren't. If you go to India, it's not hard to do those things. People, everyone's doing it already. But for an American to actually live out their deeper feelings and views of how they see themselves fitting into the world, to me, that's the root, is how do we engage and do that? And I think behavior change is interesting, like the Buddha saying, chop wood, carry water. Or like Jesus might have said, you know, live as the bird, see the, the lily of the field. So these spiritual teachers are trying to encourage us to really embrace this calmness of feeling alive as we're doing the daily task. And to me, it's not even a metaphor. Like in my home, I actually chop wood and I actually carry water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so some of these things to me weren't meant to be fully metaphor. Like the time they were written, 2,000 years ago, we had a huge empire that was trying to dominate the Roman Empire. It wasn't much different than living in New York, you know, with the U.S. as a one-world superpower trying to dominate the world. 
Jesus was faced with a superpower that was swashing anyone in its wake, you know. So we were witnessing a similar thing, and we had the same challenges then as I think in a sense we have now. Now it's just bigger. Our machines of destruction are bigger. Our lifestyles are way more complicated. And to get to the root of it, to me, is, it's it's more obscured. I think it's just as simple still. <laughs> it's so simple. Just to take a fair, even slice of the global pie. It's a very simple thing. I'm thinking of Andy Warhol famously referring to himself as being deeply superficial. And I would say that that is an apt descriptor for Western pop culture. And I wonder often what would it take to have more people interested in the deeper aspects of life. Yeah. To access that spiritual dimension of life, to experience it that way. Because you can put it in front of people. That doesn't mean they're going to gravitate to it. Sure. Like you bring a horse to water, you can't make it drink. That's right. And then I've been this year alone maybe 70 speaking engagements and last year just as many and mostly college campuses. I do open up my heart and share in a vulnerable way with students and I think why I get invited back often is that they haven't heard too many professors engage the heart. Mm-hmm. And the heart to me is this idea of, wow, I love other life. I love other people. <laughs> I love people even if I haven't seen them in other countries. Like my dad in the 60s would say, there's hungry people in Africa, so don't waste food. I still feel that affinity. I mean, I was like seven years old when he was saying that. But it registered for me that there's this just love that I have of life and humanity. And when I consume less, I'm just giving them a better share, a chance of having enough. What kind of upbringing did you have, Jim? I mean, I'd love to have a world with more people like you. You mentioned that you were one of nine children. And I know that you were a a military engineer when the Exxon Valdez disaster took place, you were so shaken and touched by this that you made a whole life change. But that doesn't happen in an isolated moment. There was this whole history of Jim behind that capability to be so touched. So I'm curious about your early life and your childhood. Mm. Would you share about that? Yeah. Well, let's see. My parents were very conservative Republicans. My dad, a truck driver, you know, blue-collar family. and uh, But we did live in a beautiful place out on eastern Long Island next to the water, and I spent every moment I could in the forest or out at the ponds and out on the bays and loved the water, loved nature. And even though my dad was this real, like, you would say a tough conservative guy, you know, and uh, he loved beautiful places so they lived when they finally retired they bought a little log cabin up in Maine us going to beautiful places I think that helped my parents had a daycare center and my mom took care of maybe 80 children a day with 11 people working with her and she had black children coming to the daycare center and uh, we lived in a neighborhood that was an association and when she would bring say, eight children a day to the beach, everything was fine, to our private beach, 
where our house is located with a private sandy beach. As soon as she brought a black child, we got a, a letter from the association saying that these children can't come to the beach. Well, my father dressed all his nine kids up in nice clothing and took us all to the association meeting, and he didn't even let the meeting start, and he had a prepared letter, and he really let these people know that their racism was basically so far out of line. It was incredible, and he decided to move his family away from there just so we wouldn't have to be in living with racism. And so his I remember that so clearly, his standing up for what was right. Amazing, beautiful. And so, and he had this way of saying, like, you're responsible for everything you do. You're, like, 100% responsible for the implications of your actions. And I think that's where I connect with uh, cross-political lines with conservatives. And, like, my mom is giving away, like, 50 or more copies of my book, you know. She's one of my best promoters because it doesn't, uh, most of it doesn't uh, ruffle her feathers, because a conservative can hear it as much as a liberal, because it's really just common sense in a way of being responsible. So, if you, you know, how is, big is your impact? And if you want to care about the future generations, the other species, then you bring it into a into a alignment with what the Earth can sustain. So, my upbringing had this in it. Um, no religion in my background. Like my parents didn't baptize me, but they wanted us to be good. You know, so they would read to us from the newspapers at the dinner table. We'd have silent dinners where you would have to look around and see what your brother and sister needed and pass it to them before they would ask because we couldn't talk. Hmm. So it's just a way of paying attention to each other. I don't know where they came up with these things, but it was beautiful. Yes. In hindsight. That's a great exercise, really. I like that. You know, this collective consciousness here... You know, we had a nine children and a mom and dad in a two-bedroom house. <laughs> so you have to, one bathroom, <laughs> five girls. Mm-hmm. And you have to be conscientious and caring and thoughtful of others. You can't just always put yourself as number one. So how did it happen at the time of the Exxon Valdez? Tell us about that moment that really sparked this revolutionary shift in your own life. Yeah, well, I was in Stockholm, Sweden, staying at a five-star hotel, the Royal Viking, I still remember, and I was down at the bar, and this big polished bar with a glass mirror behind, and on the TV up to the side came the Valley Spill. And, you know, it just hit me so far in out of the blue, in a sense. And when I saw the imagery, I just started to cry. Because, like, as a kid, I always dreamed of going to Alaska. And I was into bicycle riding. I thought someday I'd ride my bike to Alaska and see where the the grizzlies are, the whales and wolves, and and to see it with this kind of this oil slick and the animals trying to get away, and I looked in the mirror across the bar, and they're asking the the people on the TV are saying, was the pilot drunk, or and I just said, I am drunk on fuel on fossil fuel. Mm. You know, I was driving three miles a day to work each way. I had seven intercontinental flights that year doing international business I knew every product in my life was full of oil you know I'm a process engineer so I know behind my cereal that I buy out of the box when you shake out the cereal out comes a little prize well it's a crude coated cormorant you know there's half of that cereal is fossil energy to make it you know 
grow the food, the cereals, to process them, to pesticides, chemical fertilizers, machinery, shipping. I see, you know, I could see that easily with my engineering training. Like, what's behind everything we own was vivid for me, and and what, I just felt in a splash, like I have to change my life. This is I'm I'm the guilty one. Like, you point one finger and say, "There's the guilty one." This pilot and three fingers are coming back at me. I'm indicted. Uh, the jury of twelve whales said, "You're guilty, Jim." Uh, some people say you need a disaster. That was mine. It really was, and and I didn't know what to do when I got home. I said, "I have to change." And I got to the airport, and there's my van, you know, sitting there dusty in California. And I got it home, and I parked it, and I said, "I'm not driving it to work anymore." So, like I had my disaster, and. I started, I got my bike and my pannier bags and I went to the grocery store and I couldn't even go there. I went to the cereal aisle and I had to go back and found, I found the co-op in our town that I knew was there. I don't think I shopped there yet. And I got my food in the bulk section <laughs> and I bought the local foods and I just started doing that. It's like you really got in touch with reality. You know what I mean? You had this alignment and you weren't going to be able to go back into the blur. Yeah. It hit me so hard that it felt almost impossible to do what I was doing anymore. Your book has a chart in it showing that 1978 was the year that human consumption exceeded the sustainable carrying capacity of the earth. And that really struck me. I wonder if you could explain that chart and that moment, what it means to surpass the carrying capacity. Right. Well, the, the University of British Columbia uh, began a project in the late, uh, early 90s called Ecological Footprint Project by Dr. William Rees. He was the department head of community and regional planning. And his PhD student at the time, Matisse Fockernagel, is a uh, Swiss scientist who studied with him. And they worked together and published the book Our Ecological Footprint. And so they uh, basically totaled up the total resources it takes to sustain an American and all the areas of Earth needed to um, sequester the waste, to absorb the waste. So um, for any one of us, it looks at our food, our clothing, shelter, services, computers, phones, everything, medical and all our waste and how much earth area is needed actually to provide it. And, of course, all of us are part of the global economy, so this stuff is coming from around the world. But they total it all up and give you an eight, a number of acres of footprint. So, for instance, an average American now, their footprint is 24 acres, where someone from Europe is 12, about half, and then Mexico's half again is around 6. And then at 3 is um, China and India is right around in there. And then, again, half of that is Bangladesh and Afghan is below. So, but only one Earth exists, and the, the Did Earth... Did you say the Afghanistanis have the smallest footprint? The lowest footprint. No kidding. And that's from deep, deep poverty, <laughs> um, which is shocking. The U.S. has a way of um, really hurting the people that it bombs in a deep way. Mm-hmm. You know, the Vietnamese people had... had were probably among the poorest after they got the U.S. got through with the heinous things done to them. But the, the, the way this footprint works, uh, so they they 
they basically tally up each year since um, since '95. They've been keeping the data, but then they actually backtracked and took the data in reverse into back uh, years before they actually uh, started tracking the real data because they could go back and find old data sets. And they found that the Earth, if you take away the oceans, the deep oceans, the deserts, the ice caps, and the built-up land, and then you look at what's left is the green Earth and the green sea space uh, that's very bioproductive, a lot of phytoplankton, that's this continental shelf areas, and those total up to about 28 billion acres. And if you look at the world population at the time in 1976, well, the humans were consuming that entire, about 28 billion acres at that point. Um, and that area needed to provide all the food, housing, the materials to build a house, an area to absorb the CO2, so forest areas to sequester the CO2 from every bit of machinery, all the processes of industry and our automobiles and heating our homes, all that combined. In the year 1978, it was roughly we consumed the entire ecological productivity. And since then, we've gone into overshoot, what is known as overshoot. So right now, humans use 23% more of the bioproductivity each year than the Earth has. So that's why CO2 levels are rising. Um, CO2 levels went from 280 parts per million 150 years ago to 387 now parts per million, and it's growing at two parts per million per year, and with the prediction of the best-case scenario of going to 500 if we do everything we can, but uh, not, uh, but still in, a, in our current trajectory, like the best case of how we're headed, the worst case is 1,000 parts per million, which is uh, off the charts for what the humans have, I mean, any species has seen it in uh, a long, long time on the planet. I'm sorry, a thousand parts per million... Carbon. Carbon in the air. Yeah. A worst-case scenario for what date? For when? For 2100. Wow. So, um, you know, the, he, say you're not, so in 1976, when humans began, uh, the, the Earth had... It couldn't sequester any more CO2 at that point. We had it all... All the, you know, the cities that have been built and all our industries were pumping it out, but there wasn't enough trees and phytoplankton to sequester it, so CO2 level kept inching up. It's like if you have a, a field outside your house and it rains for a week and then it's full and it, the soil can't take any more water, so it's just the water level keeps rising. Yeah. It's saturated, so the forest saturated can't take up any more CO2. So every time we drive our car, it's just like, there's nothing there to take it up anymore. We're an overshoot. Okay. So, Jim, what do you think of this current economic crisis? I mean, I've been thinking about it and thinking that if people were really listening to people like you and living according to your book and living according to Vicki Robinson's Your Money or Your Life, which you so often refer to in your book, we might actually see the very downturns in the usual economic indicators. You know, if you're looking at the Standard and Poor's and the Dow um, that we're seeing now, but that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing given the crisis 
we're looking at, it wouldn't necessarily mean a poorer quality of life long term. And I'm, I'm just wondering how you are personally looking at this moment that is considered the crisis. Right. Well, I think it's a great opportunity for us to become closer to an alignment with the world's consumption levels. Um, one basic premise of my book, uh, Radical Simplicity, is that if we were to view ourselves as a global citizen instead of a, uh, an American citizen in terms of how much we consume, you know, anyone you ask would kind of have a gut sense that we're way, way, way out of alignment. But the level of out of alignment, if you compare the poorest billion on Earth to the richest billion, there's a gap of 250 to 1. So myself, even living on $5,000 a year, I'm part of the richest, say, 17% of the world's people. So, it's, Can you say that again? Yeah. Living on $5,000 a year, you are still? Still among the richest 17% of humanity. If we just look at, say, 60% of the, the poorest on Earth live on 520 a year. So I'm 10 times richer than 60% of humanity. I don't think our audience um, knows what it is to live on $5,000 a year in the United States and probably would think that that would be a very poor life and not include much pleasure. I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, I'm celebrating my 20th anniversary. of living on roughly 5,000 a year on average. So Congratulations. It's been a fun journey, <laughs> and I call it an experiment because you can't fail with an experiment. You can only learn. And, you know, I, I went to it pretty quickly in 1989. I had a four-bedroom house, you know, a room for me, a room for the computer, a room for the exercise bikes and my bicycles, and a room to meditate in. So I rented three of them out, and then I got my housing cost very low in San Luis Obispo, California, a fairly expensive California city. I took the vehicle off the road, had, had it off the road for 14 years, and planted a vegetable garden and just stopped buying anything new. So I was purchasing used clothing, uh, shopping at thrift stores and things, and buying quality food and growing food and organic food and had lots of times for friends and fun and activism and donated close to 20,000 hours to volunteer causes over those years. And I think what made it somewhat, people ask me, well, what were the sacrifices? And I would say there really weren't any. Because um, if I compared it to what I was doing earlier of selling weapon systems and military things, that was really hard once I learned to, to do something that was so against my values. That felt really hard. Yes, that would be draining. Draining. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and we're having a conversation today with sustainability hero Jim Merkel. I was a design engineer. I designed a BlackBerry of the 80s that was a top-secret cryptographic computer. Had to even work underwater by a skin diver. And I was the lead engineer with all the like, 20-something engineers working with me on it. And it was just fun and exciting to be on this challenging design project. But when I look at living on 5,000 a year, it's really not 
as hard as that project <laughs> at all. Um, it's, but it is hard in America to say no to things that are really easy to have. Yes, well, I, I guess a part of the lifestyle would have to be not letting the seductive magazines and television into your mind because, you know, if you, if you put yourself in front of these very sophisticated uh, advertisements, I mean, they're, they're trying to hit your most vulnerable spots and really pandering to sort of the, the weakest part of our nature. Right. And they're good at it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's highly um, researched, and they're really trying to go for it. They go for it. And, you know, I studied this thing called the nag factor, and I thought it was researchers trying to help parents with um, children who nag them to buy things. But it was actually researchers trying to figure out how to get children to more effectively nag the parents <laughs> to actually make the purchase happen. Oh. And their con- con- commercials are designed to market it at children, oftentimes to have them just become so ir- irritating to the parent that the parent will, will just buy it just to shut them up. Sad. It's very manipulative. Manipulative. And, you know, we'll, you'll see 40000 a year by the time you graduate high school. By the time you graduate high school, you're up to 250,000 TV commercials. And that's not including magazines, radio, billboards. Logos on your friends' things, logos all around you. If you're just any, wherever you are, if you just look around, count how many logos you, you can count, you know, in the next hour or five minutes or just sitting in one place, how many logos can you count mm-hmm. in the classroom, you know, in your office. You know, Jim, I'm remembering that one line from your book that really struck me was you said, the year after I got rid of the TV, I sold the gun. Right? And so, since we're on the subject already, what do you see as the roots of violence in our culture? Well, there's a... It's, it seems crazy that we do get so pen, uh, so much violence happening. And I know as a young kid, I had a lot of fear. Um, that's why I had a gun at 18 years old. And I was afraid. And um, I thought I needed to protect myself. The interesting thing, when I did get rid of the television, I had about a year without it. I didn't. I, I started to not have that fear anymore. And I remember my first time camping out on my like alone out in the forest. I was dead frightened. Like I thought I was going to get either mugged or eaten alive by something wild. That everything would wake me up. And now I've spent like I just crossed the continent twice by bicycle across Canada and sleep anywhere I find myself. I slept in the middle of a city. <laughs> and um, I'm not afraid of people anymore, and I'm not afraid of strangers, and I'm not afraid when I go through towns and people have opened up their homes, and I'm not dumb. I'm, you know, I'm a recovering New Yorker, <laughs> but um, I, I don't put myself in vulnerable situations. If there's alcohol and drugs, I get way away from it. But people are pretty kind. There is a ton of violence out there, and it's pretty... But you think of the cartoons with the, you know, the mouse and the cat doing a hundred violent actions in thirty minutes, and this is how we're raised, watching this stuff like glued to the television for hours and hours. So you're saying that the television promotes the culture of fear, which sets up sort of attack, defend, 
mentality? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's, I think, part of it. And also we came to this continent and um, stole it from the Native Americans. There's a lot of things in our culture that are not healthy, uh, and we haven't dealt with them. So, like, if you arrive in new continent and you steal the land from the natives and swindle it away through treaties and that you manipulate it or just take it and kill them, um, it's hard to sleep at night. You're always in fear because you just stole. Like, if you're stealing from your neighbor, you can't sleep that well. And I think we have this 500-year history where we haven't been that great uh, citizens and there's been violence and violence. And then there's also this... That's his his story, his story, and I think there's a, her story, which is a lot of communities that, that weren't full of violence and times of in history that, you know, they aren't written in the books where we really cooperated and we got along and we made beautiful gardens together and lived in communities together. So I just see the human so capable of doing either. Mm-hmm. And there was probably a time in history, if you go far enough back, where before the patriarchy, where it was more of a matriarchal society, and it's a long time ago, even maybe before agriculture, where humans were not always in, in fighting mode. Like, even if you look at the history of California, of before Spanish came, there was 23 tribes with languages as different as French and German living next to each other, but there wasn't a constant warfare. And there's no evidence of, like, mass murders, of, like, putting mass graves and things. There's no evidence of anything really, really heinous and nasty. Of course, they had their little things that happened, like a moose would square off against another moose, but it wasn't just a constant um, conflict. So humans know how to live in a beautiful way, too, without constant conflict. And So I think that's part of my work is try to explore that with people. How do we live together in a way that we're not in fear and that we're, um, you know, we're there to help. You know, it's not just about me, it's about we. How do we work together in our community? Well said, Jim. Rion Eisler talks about that prehistory as the partnership model, and she is also known to be a great feminist pioneer your book really is an educational journey, and where you take us in the final chapters and the final words is to the wisdom of considering population reduction, not just um, you know leveling it off because we are already we've already surpassed the carrying capacity until we would find other ways to manage our affairs. There's wisdom in actually having fewer people to try and work with the earth that we have, the space that we have. And this sustainability challenge seems to have a component to educating women and the treatment of women because wherever you find women who are truly educated and given their own power, you do find them managing birth control in a more responsible way. Would you agree with that, and, and do you speak about that when you speak on sustainability? Yeah, I do agree. And the human history on Earth that has been smaller families, and it's been in the Industrial Revolution where the knee of the curve of the population curve happened, and the exploitation happening there was just horrendous. I mean, 
women were hunted down as witches and burned and childhood labor was happening all over Europe, all over the U.S. We were putting kids in factories and working them horribly and people were having large families just to work in the farms and the factories and to feed this industrial revolution, which was a sad chapter of human history. But before that, if you look at the population of the planet, it was fairly stable for hundreds of thousands of years. And all the native wisdom is there on how to use herbs and to prevent fertility and breastfeeding delays uh, fertility a bit. And women would have small families, and they do, where there's where poverty has been eradicated. My own research in Kerala, India, shows that that state of India in the southern part of India has small families, 1.7 child families, and women are at full education, and beyond that, it's not even empowerment of women. Women have power there, and they are, and they control their fertility, and they are respected in society. And just as one example, the women of Kerala, India, there's 104 girls to 100 boys born in a healthy situation. That's the ratio that's considered healthy, and India, it's 92, and China's around 92. Pakistan, I think, was 89. Or, you know, most countries that are in the southern hemisphere have, you know, 10 female less than men, roughly, in the ratio, which is known as the fatal daughter syndrome, or you know, deprivation of resources to girls. In a dog-eat-dog, post-colonial, patriarchal, green revolution you know, world where, you know, women used to be the kingpin of agriculture if you listen to Vendana Shiva and now people are committing suicide as farmers in the globalized green revolution where they're being asked to spray chemicals and grow food. Hmm. And it's a total dissing of, of women and, and ill treatment. And the researcher that I went to Kerala with, uh, we were studying why Kerala had such great life quality and such great sustainability be, uh, with, without even raised incomes. And the uh, lead researcher, Dr. Will Alexander, he pinned it on status of women as being the prime factor. It's valuing women and then women not necessarily needing a factory education like reading, writing, arithmetic because a lot of women there are very wise. They don't, uh, in the tribal areas, they're very wise. They don't need to, say, be thrown into a factory education like our model. Well, feminine values are very nurturing spiritual values by and large. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really need to be educated. It's it's coming from the heart and soul of the, heart and soul of the and, female. Yeah, and and you know, I what I witnessed in the tribal areas, even in Kerala, India, was the women were extremely wise. You know, I asked an elder woman in her 80s if she thought that humans were stewards of the earth, and she gave me a scolding and said, no, 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 how arrogant to think you're the steward. She said, we're part of the earth. And then I asked that to an elder woman of the Shumash tribe of California, where I lived, who I became friends with, and I asked her, do you think we're stewards? And she said the same exact response. This is halfway around the world. An indigenous woman in California said, no, we're part of the earth. We're not stewards. And Edward Abbey does a good play on this, the word steward. He says, look it up in the dictionary. It comes from Old English, stig and weird. Stig is a sty or a filthy place, and weird is the keeper. And so we think we self-propel our humanity onto this pinnacle and say we're the finished product of evolutionary track. 
which is completely unsupported scientifically, <laughs> and that we have this, uh, the human is the one who, uh, who has all these capabilities and things, and yet um, they're saying the Shumash and the indigenous are just saying, no, we're part of the web of life. We're just a strand in the web. And and having that humility, everything we do would be a little different. So that's like almost for me the root or the spiritual part where we started is when you feel that humility inside of you, some people think that would be like scary or if you don't have a God to believe in or a religion that you put all your faith in this one thing and you just believe it log, stock, and barrel because it says it in, in some book or some old teaching. But you just pay attention and spend some time out on the earth and walk uh, in the forest and witness nature around you. Anyone will see without a teacher or a book or anything that we are just part of this crazy, beautiful earth. And things work. Like you go out in the forest and you're not going to find like a toxic waste dump or a feedlot for cows, you know, that just doesn't exist out there if you spend like years and hours and months walking through the forest. Things have a rhythm and uh, cycles, and some things are harsh, and there's a beauty to the harshness. I want to have the chance to talk about one thing with you. I'm noticing everywhere I look, in the media, in books, television shows, advertisements all around, a proliferation of images and suggestions and stories and ideas Portraying an earth without people. All over New York City now, there are these billboards about a television show called Life After People. And there's lots of stuff. Even in interesting places like TED.com, the TED Talks, there are people talking about the future of people with bionic parts and robots replacing a lot of the things that people do and artificial intelligence going beyond the capacity of the human brain. And so there's just a lot of money and energy and attention in this direction. And I find it very disturbing because it seems as if we're just being asked to give up on the potential of the human being as we are. We haven't even touched uh, the human potential of the heart and the spirit. We have not been able to succeed with the great experiment of humanity as I see it, of us really being able to be fully human and be whole. Have you noticed this proliferation of images and ideas sort of pumping us in this direction? And and what do you think of it? Yeah, well, I've, I've seen that even since the 80s, you know, this these ideas of, of science will fix everything and um, this trajectory of, well, we were going to populate space and seeing that, uh, well, if we mess this one up, there'll be another Personally, I feel that there's a lot of hunger in the youth that I'm encountering at college campuses for something that's authentic. And a lot of what you are just describing, you know, I see it and it just feels so non-authentic. It's cold. There's a coldness to it. And there's not really the human connection that we're really hungry for. And even with a lot of our new communication things, I'm not so savvy with them. I Skype a little once in a while. I use email, but I see people who really live by their little boxes. And sure, I'm not going to criticize what others are doing. I don't really understand it fully, but there is something about face-to-face human connection that I think I know I'm hungry for it. And whenever I have more of that in my life, I just feel more held and more um, solid 
grounded. What you're suggesting is this, you know, our human potential not fully being realized. It is a somewhat sadness because whenever we do realize it, like if you just had a special time with a certain special friend where all the veils and appearances were, were wiped away and you could just look in each other's eyes and see the beauty of each other's soul and humanity. And we all have those little moments when we see that glimpse of a child and it just makes us smile or nature and it's sparkling and vibrating or our friend is just so real and with us and we're right there together. You know, those types of connections are so beautiful and they can be way... It, it can be a natural part of life day by day. And there is a lot of motion to keep us distracted and it keeps us hungry and, and uh, when we're hungry we look for things that are going to fill the void and it's usually someone trying to sell us something. The big industries are brilliant at exploiting our hunger and hoping to keep us isolated. Like the Native American were being forced to grow agriculture. They didn't want, they were wanting to be on the land, sharing the whole, like thousands of acres together and say, no, I don't want my own plot because if you give me my own plot, then, you know, I'll think it's mine because I want to get those spring uh, roots from over that way. And those are, we will then be on someone else's land. We shared all this. Mm-hmm. And it was our responsibility to keep it all healthy together. Don't subdivide us and put us into these little compartments and get us so we don't need each other. Yes, these right. People have these machines so we don't need each other. It's beautiful to need each other, you know, to say, wow, I need you, you know, that, you know, and just to feel like even the rawness of vulnerability and say, you know, I'm scared right now. I need you, you know. Um, we feel afraid, you know, and I, I call it a lot with a lot of the campuses, you know, the students start opening up their heart because that's what I'm trying to do is say, first be vulnerable, you open up your heart. Like, I'm coming out of the closet. Like, I care. Some people say, oh, you, people will only make changes if it's in their own best interest, like of their pocketbook. Well, the Dalai Lama says, assume everyone's more virtuous than yourself. <laughs> what an awful feeling to go around thinking, oh, I made changes. Eco Jim makes changes for the earth because I care. But all those people out there, they'll never do it, only if it's good for their pocketbook. You know, what a, what a foolish opinion of myself, you know, for one to carry. And it's an awful opinion of others, because I meet people all the time who really deeply care. They may not be acting on it now, and I can understand why, because they're getting too many crazy uh, sources of information. But has it erased their capacity to care? No. Because as soon as we see something happen that's traumatic in our communities, you watch the people all come together to help out. It's true. People do respond at times of emergency, And I think every day about what is it going to take for people to rise to the occasion and get out of denial about the ecological collapse that um, is impending if we cannot change. Why is it so hard for people to get in touch with their own moral connection to the whole of life and to live from that? Why is it so hard? Yeah. The eco-psychologists like Theodore Rosak and his book, The Making of the Counterculture of the Late 60s and his later work, he termed this thing eco-psychology just being what is our psychological need for the earth. Indigenous people from Tahiti had said, oh, when we have a, a new child born, we have a ceremony. We bury the placenta, symbolizing now the baby has two mothers. Oh, that's Mother beautiful. Earth 
is going to provide everything for the and the biological mother in the interim is going to be the the conduit from the mother earth to the through the mother to the baby and then in North America it's the same again the same ritual with the same symbology but when we're so alienated from the earth like through uh, concrete steel glass cities urbanization and then the shopping malls and the stores and our food comes from a package in styrofoam and no farmer there um, we feel like we're dependent on our dollars but like the native old saying you'll you'll feel funny someday trying to eat your dollars when you've destroyed the earth this alienation the eco-psychologists are suggesting could be behind our disease of depression and anxieties is one of the factors is that we we feel uneasy a lot. We don't feel at home. We're searching for home, a lot of us. Are. We're hungry for home, a place that feels like we belong because we haven't connected with the Mother Earth in that way so deeply. And for me, I just ask people sometimes when I'm in a group, I say, just remember back when you first fell in love. Like, who here has fallen in love? And everybody raised their hand, you know, at least once. And then I ask, well, can you remember what it was like when you first fell in love, like the first month? And did you do anything kind of crazy or talk all night on the phone or try something you never thought you'd ever try? And, of course, people have. And then um, did, did it ever feel like a sacrifice to make a change, to, to be with their lover? And, of course, never felt like sacrifice. And did their dreams feel more possible now that they're in love? And, of course, their dreams feel more alive. And then... So we fall in love with each other. It's a magical thing when it happens. Sometimes we don't appreciate it a year later, and I think that's a sadness too. But, well, if we could fall in love with the earth the way we fall in love with, with each other, then all the changes to be sustainable, there'd just be no sacrifice. It's just obvious. Like, you know, when your partner really is needing something, you're just so happy to provide it. It's just like a joy. It's not like, oh, what am I giving up? It's just a joy. That's so right. I really think that is the answer, to have people's hearts more available and then for the beauty of what's already here mm. to shine into those hearts. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, you know, the work I see of environmentalists, certain groups of environmentalists, is, is to help people connect and touch, you know, and I encourage them to get out into nature, no matter where it is. Just get out. Jim, how do people get in touch with you? What's your website, and how, how can people find out more about your work and, and what you're going to be doing up ahead? Sure. My uh, website is www.radicalsimplicity.org, and on there is my address and phone number and email. Thank you. And, folks, go run, get this book, Radical Simplicity, and Take the journey because Jim goes through aspects of our impact that most of us don't think about at all in detail, and you will never see what you're doing in the same way again. Bless you in your work. Continue on, and let's keep the conversation going. Fantastic, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me today. You're so welcome. <laughs> 